Father, we thank you for this privilege of coming before you to hear your word. We ask that you would speak to us, that what would happen is not just the words of a man or the words that are on paper, or, but that your word would be spoken to us, that your spirit would communicate to us, that we would hear you and see you and be drawn into your presence. Lord, please be glorified in all that transpires here. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved." In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. Well, when we first, when we last saw Paul, um, he was on the shores of Miletus saying a tearful goodbye to the elders of the church of Ephesus after reminding them and us of some of the things that he had taught them. He also told them of his and theirs and what we can assume is our likely future, calling them to finish the race well. And and he he warned them of wolves and false false teachers. We were encouraged last week to, to finish our race well and to be cautious about wolves and false teachers. Paul also told them not to forget the things he had taught them. Among other things he mentioned were the necessity and the importance of repentance, the the centrality of faith in Jesus, the the paramount position of the kingdom of God in our values and thoughts and concerns. He talked about the amazing and key issue of grace. And he, he mentioned that it is better to give than to receive. This is what we talked about last week. And then he also talked about how precious we are having been purchased with the very blood of Jesus. After this, Paul 
headed off to Jerusalem where he expected uh, to face uh, affliction and imprisonment. And, and he was right. Uh, in Jerusalem, he was arrested, falsely accused, imprisoned, held without justification. In the midst of all this, he appealed to Caesar, which as a Roman citizen he could do. And this led to him being sent to Rome where he would be tried by Caesar. It is now 61 AD. He's under house arrest in Rome. It's about five years since Miletus and that meeting with the elders. One of the things Paul did while a prisoner in Rome was write letters to the churches God had used him to start and to build up. In our scriptures, we have four of those letters, Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, and the letter to Ephesians, which we are going to be looking at today. Since Paul truly did not know if he would live or die at this point, he was communicating things that were essential for believers, things that he really wanted them to remember, to hold on to, just in case he didn't make it out of Rome. Some of these letters address particular issues. Some reminded people of things he had told them previously. And some of the letters were intended to become circular letters, letters to be passed from church to church, which appears particularly to be the case with the letter to the Ephesians. One of the interesting things about the letter to the Ephesians is that there are some early manuscripts that leave out the words in Ephesus in verse 1, such that it appears only to address, be addressed to the saints, not the saints in Ephesus. And yet in every translation I looked at, uh, and I looked at about 20 of them, in Ephesus was actually included in the English version, which was a bit odd to me because normally when there are additional words, the, the textual scholars will assume that those words were added later on and they weren't in the original, which is usually the case. In this case, however, that's not what, what happened. Uh, it, it seemed to be the common conclusion, based on what the translators did, um, that the goal, uh, and, and the translator's goal is to get as close to the original language as possible, uh, they concluded that it was there. Uh, there are some, many respected uh, conservative commentators who think it's not there. One of them in particular um, was very adamant that in Ephesus is actually not in the original letter. And what he argued for was that in essence, it said to the saints blank, and then you fill it in by whatever church you're at. That would have been the normal way that the textual critics would have handled that when extra stuff's added. However, uh, most of the translators, most of the commentators, the history of the church uh, is that in Ephesus is, is actually in the text. All this to say, one thing is agreed. This, this letter is for all believers. So whether in Ephesus is in there or whether it is to the church, to the saints in blank, the idea is that this church, this letter is intended for all the church, which is us. This letter is for us. So what does Paul say in the letter and in our 14-verse text? He says a ton. It is, 
in basically one long sentence that the translators broke up into multiple sentences, Paul says so much in so many of those verses that you could camp out on almost any one of them. But we, we won't do that. Um, a goal of this series is to learn from our Christian brothers and sisters in Ephesus so, so we don't make the mistake they did, which was they forgot their first love, Jesus. And so what I decided to do was to take a look at the text and look for some handles, some, some things that we can hold on to in this text that if our brothers and sisters in Ephesus had held on to, they might not have ended up where they did. So there are five things in particular that we will look at in more detail today. There are others. Um, there are many others, but these fives really, really resonated with me. The first is in verse 1-4, when Paul says, chapter 1, verse 4, when Paul says, God chose us before the foundation of the world. This leads into the first of two references to predestination in this text, though I, though I think the whole text is flooded with reference to that. And before anyone thinks, here goes Kevin, he's going to get all Calvinistic on us, you, you, you need to set that aside. Being chosen before the foundation of the world, being predestined is the truth. We are predestined. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. That is what the scriptures say. Those are givens. What is not in the text is any mention of any problem that this creates with the doctrine of free will, which is also in the scripture and in Paul's writings and is also very true. And for what it's worth, our text also does not mention John Calvin. There also isn't any reference to the seemingly eternal debate between free will and predestination. In our, in our text, it is simply a complete attitude of gratitude that we were chosen by God and a recognition that our salvation was and is entirely a consequence of God's decision and God's will. Still, someone may want to buck against this, arguing that we should get credit for his choice of us. And let's just go back and look at verse 4. It says, God chose us before the foundation of the world. That was just a few years before I was conceived. Uh, definitely before my ability to make a choice. That was before my mom and dad. That was before grandma and grandpa Adam and Eve. Whatever the case may be regarding our decision to follow Jesus, to receive him as our Savior, however we figure out the sequence of the Holy Spirit's call and how God makes it possible for our sinful hearts to desire God when the fact is that no one is righteous, no one not one, or despite the fact that on our own, without the grace and mercy of God, we would only choose sin, this verse, this scripture is very clear. Before I could do anything at all to earn my choice or expect his choice or desire his choice, he chose me. He chose you. And that is amazing. 
you who have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, have been chosen and predestined by the God of the universe to receive his grace and mercy and forgiveness and even the very righteousness of his own son. And he did this when you absolutely did not deserve it and were not even capable of asking for it on your own. If someone, after hearing that, feels a little cocky or feels like they're pretty cool stuff or still want to insist that they chose God first or somehow assert that God had the good sense to choose them, they miss the point. We cannot take credit for the last breath we took, let alone our first breath, or that we exist at all. Why do we feel inclined to argue that we somehow contribute to our salvation through our smarts and good decision-making when we can't even control where our breath is going to come from? What we can take credit for, if we're honest, is our sin. It's almost like this argument is we're, we're wanting to say, Okay, we added a drop of water to a beach somewhere and somehow we filled up the ocean. It's not that way. Instead, we should simply thank him and praise him. He predestined me and saved me. And I am thankful. There's no room for selfish pride, nor is there any need to prove anything when one has a correct understanding of predestination. It should simply be experienced in humility and thanksgiving and assurance. This is another wonderful thing about God choosing us. God will not change his mind about this choice. If you believe in him and have him as your Savior and Lord then he chose you before that. And you are his. And he will not let you go. And that is that. Hallelujah. Okay, so, but what did he choose us for? Well, the the text gives us a few answers to that question. Verse 4 says that he chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him. Verse 5 says, he predestined us for adoption as sons. Verse 11 says, we were predestined so that we might be to the praise of his glory. A phrase that is repeated in verse 6, 12, and 14. We were chosen to be made perfect, to receive the inheritance of sons, and for his praise and glory. If you want to know why you were chosen, that's why. Not because of what you did. Not because of who you are. That's why you were chosen. So that he could make you perfect. So that he could make you his child. So that you could be so wrapped up in his praise and glory and love for all eternity. That's why he chose you. Again... Hallelujah. 
But what about those who were not chosen? Candidly, that is not our concern. And definitely not an issue in this text. We, we simply think too much of ourselves when we ask that question particularly due to the underlying assumption that we somehow know better than God or somehow we have the ability to tell or the right to tell an all-perfect, just God that he's unfair. Our God is absolutely good, absolutely kind, perfect, absolutely loving, absolutely wise, absolutely all-powerful, beyond eternal, are we? If we want to debate with God about how important we are and how important our choices are, or how, how you, we could do better than him, or about whom he should forgive and who he shouldn't, or accuse him of being unfair, I'm going to suggest that we go back and start with this issue of our first breath. When, when we can settle that one, then maybe we can start debating with God about his choice. He is God, we are not. And the good news, and that's what this is, it's beyond good news, is that he chose us. He chose us who belong to him from before the foundation of the world. The second observation comes from verse 7 when it says, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Many of us are familiar with these terms. Redemption and forgiveness. And they're really important, um, so we're going to go over them a little bit. Redemption is a reference to being ransomed from captivity or slavery. Redemption refers to something being done to someone who no longer owns themselves, who is in inescapable bondage or enslavement. And the person being redeemed is ransomed out of that bondage. The part that we sometimes fail to remember is that contrary to the be all you can be and dream it and be it and nothing is impossible if you believe it, stuff that it just pounded into our heads, the fact is that we cannot redeem ourselves. It's not possible. In our case, if you are saved, you were in bondage to sin and death and there simply was no way for us to unring that bell. Wasn't possible. Plus, the, the price of redemption, the ransom, is perfection. And, and we simply, none of us, have that in our bank accounts. It's just not there. Partial payments, pay as you go, it doesn't work. And, and, and while you can go from perfect to imperfect, it's impossible to go from imperfect to perfect. The only hope for those in bondage to sin and death who are not perfect and cannot become perfect 
as we were, is for someone who is perfect to offer himself in our stead. And that is what Jesus did. That's what it means to be redeemed. So when you hear redemption, redeemed, that's what it means. If we truly understood this, how, how awful the outcome of the unredeemed state is, what the consequences of our sinful bondage is, what, what the future is for those who are slaves to sin, as we were. If we truly understood this, it should create a response when we learn that we've been redeemed. Far beyond laying on the side of the pool after being rescued, trying to catch our breath. It would involve dancing. It would involve singing. It would involve joy unspeakable. Yes, there would be relief. I'm out of the pool. I'm not drowning. But joy absolute. That's, that's our response to the redemption. But Jesus did something else. He made it possible for us to be forgiven. This is different than redemption. Redemption is a change in ownership or status. Being forgiven is a change in value or nature. Think, think about this. When the ransom was paid for us, the, the price of God's, at the price of God's own son, we really were not that good of a bargain for God. There were billions of us, and any one of us is really not that different. Plus, all of us were covered in sin. God had to be motivated by something pretty powerful to consider spending anything to get that deal. And it was not our value. It was his love. Did you see that at the end of verse 4? It says that God did what he did. He chose to redeem us in love. That's amazing. Yet once he had ransomed us, we were still the rebellious and guilty sinners, completely unworthy of grace and covered in sin. But he washed us. He cleansed us. He forgave us all of our sins. He paid all of our debts. And he made us new. He gave us, then he gave us the righteousness of his son. Now we are worth something. With his death, he redeemed us. With his blood, he cleansed us and forgave us. And it was all because he loved us. And entirely out of grace. The third observation is that we are adopted as sons. When we hear this phrase, adopted as sons which is what it says in the original language, except it's in Greek. It is essential to make sure that we hear it and understand it correctly. With all the hairball paternalistic chauvinism that's characterized mankind throughout creation, some might not hear this correctly. Specifically, we need to make sure that we do not hear adopted as men or adopted as as male. 
Again, this might seem silly, but for some, particularly some women and some misguided men, this is really a big deal. The focus in this phrase, adopted as son or sons, has nothing whatsoever to do with maleness. It's about relationship and it's about status. Adoption refers to the fact that by God's grace and will, God has chosen to make us full and complete children of God. We are no longer orphans or under the influence of another. We are God's child. That is adoption. And remember this, you you don't get to choose your parents when you're being adopted. It's something that is done to you and changes you forever. The reference to sons is a reference to status or position. In that culture, sons inherited the property and the wealth. Sons were the heirs. If it had said adoption as daughters, in that context, it would have been a very different thing and not nearly as powerful and wonderful. In a culture that simply did not value women the way God has taught us in his word to value women, being a daughter did not come with an inheritance. Being a son did. And that is the point. So when you hear adoption as sons, we need to hear officially and forever made a child of God and his heir. That's what we need to hear. We have been adopted by God as his child and his heir. That is who we are. But what does this mean, being heirs of God, since God's not exactly going to die and we're not going to really inherit heaven and earth and I'm probably never going to take possession of that? Well, the, the heir is, invested, is vested with the Father's authority. Remember phrases, and, and it's throughout our scriptures, and, and if you listen for it, you're going to see it more and more. All authority in heaven and earth is given to you. Do you remember that? Or given the keys of the kingdom, who owns the keys? Or in the Father's name? These are all kind of carry the same idea. As his heirs, his children, who make up his church, which is called his body, we are in essence an extension of the Father of God into the world. That's what it means to be heirs. We're his presence here. In the short term, though, we also get some things by being his heirs. We get, according to our text, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Or we get his grace, which is lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And we get his presence in us. And we get to be sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Those are pretty valuable things we experience now. And if you want to know how valuable they are, if you are not an heir, 
you will not get every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You will not be a recipient of His grace. And you will not receive the Holy Spirit. Our inheritance is very important now as well. And we are adopted as his child and his heirs. The next thing I want to look at is the phrase, in Christ. This phrase and similar phrases is mentioned at least 10 times in the first 13 verses. But what does it mean? If I said, I found joy in my grandchildren, you would know what I meant by in, wouldn't you? It's or we can understand in Christ by saying what it does not mean. It does not mean being separated from Jesus. It does not mean doing it ourselves. It does not mean without him. In Christ refers to the spiritual union of Christ with his believers. We are more than attached. We are intertwined, immersed, one of them, think about him, part of, part of him. In him means Jesus is our source. The metaphor of being the body of Christ is also helpful in, in understanding in Christ. We are connected, not separate, extensions of. Our text says the following about being in him. And just listen to this list. Um, our faithfulness is found in him. Our blessing and spiritual blessings in heavenly places is in him. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We have been blessed in him. In him we have redemption. God's purpose was set forth in Christ. All things will be united in him, in him, we have obtained an inheritance. Our hope is in Christ. In him, we heard the word of truth and the gospel of salvation. In Christ, we believe and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It kind of keeps going. And here's the question. When you think about all of that, that is in him, if we are in him, why do we try to find life in anyone else or anything else? In ourselves, in retirement, in whatever. We have heard the, the phrase, Christ is enough. We need to take away from this that that is true. We need to find our life in Christ because that's where it is. Finally, I want to address this concept of mystery that we find in verse 9, which uh, we will deal with a lot more when we get to chapter 3 because there's a lot about it there. And we tend to think of mystery as kind of an Agatha Christie or NCIS type mystery, uh, a problem to be solved. If you just get enough clues or smart enough or have a mass spectrometer or a magnifying glass, you can figure this out. But, but that's, that's not the idea when it's used here. A mystery, as Paul uses it here, is something is hidden. It's not a puzzle to be solved. It needs to be revealed. 
So what was this mystery? What was the thing that was hidden that needed to be revealed? It was God's will, God's plan. What's he doing? Verse 9 and 10 explains the mystery by saying that it was God's will, which was revealed according to God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is a statement of the absolute centrality of Christ. That it's in Christ, things that previously did not make sense are now possible to be understood. What I want us to see now is that, and again, we're going to look at mystery more when we get to chapter 3, is that this mystery was made known to us and set forth in Christ. The point was not that God was keeping secrets, so no one could know what he was up to. The point was that no one could fully understand what he was doing through all of history, so it remained hidden until Christ died and rose again and ascended and sent his spirit. Until that happened, the idea of the church being the body of Christ through whom God would reveal himself to the world and make himself known. The idea that the church would include Jews and Gentiles, slave and free. The idea that the church would be made up of the redeemed and forgiven saints who have the status of children and heirs of God entirely because of the unmerited grace of God who chose us before the foundation of the world. Well, that that just wasn't possible to understand or candidly even conceivable until Jesus. Jesus makes God's work make sense to us. He's the cipher. He's the lens. And he still is. For everything. It is in him that things make sense. So there you have it. That was a quick overview there, but the, the five things that I hope, hope that we will hang on to or kind of be anchored in so that we don't make the mistake. Again, this is the point. The Ephesian church had everything going for it. They had three years of discipleship under the Apostle Paul. They, they, they had Timothy. They had John. They had the letter written to them. They had all kinds of stuff. But Something happened, and they forgot Jesus. They forgot their first love. We don't want that to happen to us. So these are, again, some anchors that if we hold on to these things, we will not, we can't forget Jesus if you hold on to these things. The first one, that, that God chose us before the foundation of the world, before we could do anything to contribute to his merciful selection of us. That should just result in in praise and thanksgiving. The second one, that God redeemed us and forgave us through and because of Jesus' death on our behalf. 
Hold that and you will not forget your first love. Three, that we are made children of God, heirs of God because of Jesus. And we will remain his forever. Or four, that it is in Christ that life and blessing are found. And we should not try to find life in anything else, anyone else, only in Christ. And we won't forget our first love. And the fifth is that the mysteries of God's will and his plans make sense because of Jesus. May we hold on to these things in gratitude and joy, and may we never forget our first love, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, your, your word to us is amazing. And there are so many things that we can just say thank you forever. We thank you for what you did in Jesus. We thank you for calling us and making us yours. We thank you for making us your children, for making us your heirs. We thank you that you help us understand things. We thank you that if we just draw into you and let you draw us into yourself, we will have life. May it be so in the name of Jesus. Amen.